Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, hello, everybody. Good evening. And uh, thank you for joining me for the second half of our discussion of G.K. Chesterton's book, uh, The Everlasting Man. And I said at the conclusion of last week's talk, I begin this week by arguing with the great man. You know, they say that uh, fools rush in where wise men fear to tread. Well, I'm your fool for the evening. Um, basically, as Chesterton said, I'm always quoting this. Uh, and so I probably quoted it last week. And so I sort of apologize. But one of my maxims that I try to live by is Chesterton's own maxim. When he talked, spoke about his relationship with his brother, he said, we were always arguing, but we never quarreled. And that's something I try to live by, because arguing is just disagreeing with someone in order to get to a truth. So that at the end of it, both of us are better off. Even if we just agree to differ, at least we know what the other person believes now. That's an argument. A quarrel basically is just something which lacks charity, where we basically want to put the other person down. It's not about truth at all. It's about the absence of charity. Chesterton shows us in this book the way he responds to H.G. Wells, how he can give us clarity with charity. And in our dark days at the moment, with an awful lot of hatred out there, that's what we are called to do as Christians, is to evangelize by giving clarity with charity. So having said that, I'm now going to disagree with G.K. Chesterton. And I'm going to read uh, from The Everlasting Man. And for those of you following the edition that we're using, the Ignatius Press edition here, um, this is on pages 110, the bottom of page 110, and then 111. I'm going to read what Chesterton says, and I'm going to comment upon it. The substance of all such paganism may be summarized thus. There's an attempt to reach the divine reality through the imagination alone. In its own field, reason does not restrain it at all. It is vital to the view of all history that reason is something separate from religion, even in the most rational of these civilizations. It is only as an afterthought when such cults are decadent or on the defensive that a few Neoplatonists or a few Brahmins are found trying to rationalize them, and even then only by trying to allegorize them. But in reality, the rivers of mythology and philosophy run parallel and do not mingle till they meet in the Sea of Christendom. Simple secularists still talk as if the church had introduced a sort of schism between reason and religion. The truth is that the church was actually the first thing that ever tried to combine reason and religion. Mythology then sought God through the imagination or sought truth by means of beauty in the sense in which beauty includes much of the most grotesque ugliness. But the imagination has its own laws and therefore its own triumphs which neither logicians nor men of science can understand. It remained true to that imaginative instinct through a thousand extravagances. And then just to conclude, if you go on to page 113, the end of that paragraph there, so far could the lonely imagination lead. We must turn later to the lonely reason. Nowhere along this road the two ever travel together. So let's just summarize what Chesterton's saying there. He's basically saying in the pagan world, the imagination was divorced from reason. That mythology, the telling of stories, was divorced from reason. And it was only with the coming of Christendom that faith and reason were united. I'm going to bring in some witnesses on my behalf because I don't think anyone's going to take me seriously in uh, disagreeing with Chesterton unless I bring some big guns in. So I'm going to bring a really big gun in. First of all, someone who Chesterton wrote a book about, and that's Thomas Aquinas. And St. Thomas Aquinas says, now the reason why the philosopher is compared to the poet 
is that both are concerned with wonders. For the myths with which the poets deal are composed of wonders, and the philosophers themselves were moved to philosophize as a result of wonder. So Aquinas himself actually says that there's a connection between mythology and philosophy, and it is in wonder. Uh, and I may have said this last week, I'm going to say it again now, and then I'm going to bring in another big gun to back me up. And, and that's the Aquinas tells us basically that we access truth through virtue, specifically the virtue of humility, which leads to gratitude, opens the eyes in wonder. And it's that that leads to contemplation and then the, the dilation of the mind and the soul into the fullness of the real. OK, so wonder is the issue here that leads us to reality, um, whether it's through philosophizing or storytelling and the morality to be found in storytelling. And let me, before I say some more on this, bring in the other big gun, not as big as Thomas Aquinas, not probably even as big as G.K. Chesterton, but a big gun. And that is C.S. Lewis. Now, in his allegory, The Pilgrim's Regress, he has father history telling John, the everyman figure, that only the landlord's own people, in other words, the Jews, remembered how to read. And that's why they are so obsessed with writing things down with the law, because they know how to read. Everybody else, all the pagans, had forgotten how to read. But God did not desert them in their illiteracy because, because they couldn't read, he sent them pictures. And these pictures are the, are the great stories and myths we see uh, in pagan times. So having said that, having quoted Aquinas and, um, uh, and Lewis to, to question what Chesterton's saying here, and just, you know, Chesterton's basically saying that, that the imagination, so the, the myths of Homer and the, and the tragedies of Socrates, uh, Sophocles, uh, ran parallel with the, the efforts of reason of the Greek philosophers, but they never met. Well, I want to uh, very quickly look at reason in Homer, because if you actually read Homer, you realize there was a, a golden age of Greek philosophy before the golden age of Greek philosophy because of the things that Homer's speaking about. So at the beginning of the Iliad, he tells us that the whole epic is about the anger of Achilles, which is a, a consequence of his hubris, of his pride, and how that anger has destructive consequences, and how throughout all of this, the will of Zeus is accomplished. So basically, sin has destructive consequences, and yet in spite of sin having destructive consequences, there's some providential hand at work that still brings, if you like, right straight with crooked lines. In the Odyssey, at the beginning of the Odyssey, Zeus says that mortals blame us gods for their suffering. But in actual fact, it's their own recklessness which causes suffering, except for that which is given. Now, you unpack that, basically, this is getting to the heart of the problem of pain. Most suffering that we experience is caused by human sin, either the suffering we cause ourselves because of our sinfulness, or the suffering we cause others for our sinfulness, or the suffering that happens to us, if you like, as innocent victims of the sins of others. But that's not where Homer ends. He says, except for that which is given. In other words, some pain and suffering is given on top of that as a given, as a gift. So we think about things like earthquakes or hurricanes. Well, that's not a consequence of human sin, not in any direct line anyway. So what about that? And basically what Homer's getting at there is that we actually need suffering to humanize us. And the best way of, in other words, to make us more fully human. And the best way of... Um, uh, explaining that is the words of Oscar Wilde, some favorite lies of mine I'm quoting all the time also. But God's eternal laws are kind and break the heart of stone. For how else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in? Now, if Homer is asking the same questions as Oscar Wilde about the problem of pain and, and, and C.S. Lewis about the problem of pain, we can't separate the telling of stories from the act of reason. And what I would actually say is that the pagans are being prepared for Christ in the same way the Jews are being prepared for Christ by the revelation of the Old Testament. So in theology, they're being ripened 
especially in the later books such as Isaiah, ripen for the coming of the Messiah. So they're ready for him, although most of them weren't. And then on the other side, you have the use of reason, Greek philosophy, uh, and the, the, the Greek storytellers, Homer, Sophocles, etc., that are asking questions, coming to answers, but only so far, beyond which God has to reveal himself in a deeper way, which is what he does through the incarnation. And if you like, the coming of Christ baptizes the Greeks, but they were already desiring the bridegroom. Again, C.S. Lewis talks about the difference between the pagan Greeks and the neo-pagans of the Enlightenment. And he says the pagan Greeks are like a virgin awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. The neo-pagans are like the divorcee who have turned their back on the bridegroom and the marriage. So I think that Chesterton's being unfair on the pre-Christian pagans in what he's saying here. Um, and I wanted to, to clarify that. So let's now move on. All right, so let's move on to actually to um, page 119. Chesterton talked about cannibalism, about 10 lines down on that page. For most, cannibalism is not, prim not a primitive or even a bestial habit. It is artificial and even artistic, a sort of art for art's sake. Men do not do it because they do not think it horrible, but on the contrary, because they do think it horrible. They wish in the most literal sense to sup on horrors. Skip a few lines. They are refined and intelligent enough to indulge sometimes in a self-conscious diabolism. But if we could understand their minds or even really understand their language, we should probably find that they were not acting as ignorant, that is, that is as innocent cannibals. They're not doing it because they do not think it wrong, but precisely because they do think it wrong. They're acting like a Parisian decadent at a black mass. That's an allusion, by the way, to the decadence in Paris in the late 19th century that uh, Joris Cole-Huisman's writes about in his novels, including horrific descriptions and depictions of the black mass. But what Chester's saying here, you know, this whole idea of Wells and others, cannibalism is something we do when we're primitive, when we like the apes, when we're sort of beasts. It's that actually, you know, you look at the, that, that cannibalism uh, in, in human societies, it's not because we're like beasts, it's because we're like demons, it's because we want to wallow in the horror of something we know is diabolical. It's an act of decadence, not an act of uh, merely being an animal. And he carries on with that because on page 122, we move from cannibalism to infanticide, something which is pretty close to home as we live in a society of systemic infanticide. Top of page 122. It may be noted as not irrelevant here that certain anti-human antagonisms seem to recur in this tradition of black magic. They may be suspected as running through it everywhere, for instance, a mystical hatred of the idea of childhood. People would understand better the popular fury against the witches if they remember that the malice most commonly attributed to them was preventing the birth of children. Remember, Chester's writing this uh, in the mid-1920s, long before abortion is legal, uh, long before it was even thinkable for most people of abortion ever being legal. Even the, uh, the, uh, the advocates and, uh, and leaders of the early birth control movement did not advocate abortion. The unthinkable and unmentionable has become a, a systemic fact. Um, so this is Chester writing there basically about the diabolical nature of cannibalism and infanticide. And of course, you know, the, the, the abuse of children is because you want, you want to desecrate the innocent. That's the diabolical thing about it. And then we move on from that natural progression to page 145 to the worship of Moloch and Carthage. It's about six lines down. But the worshippers of Moloch were not gross or primitive. They were members of a mature and polished civilization, abounding in refinements and luxuries. They were probably far more civilized than the Romans. And Moloch was not a myth, or at any rate, his meal was not a myth. These highly civilized people really met together to invoke the blessing of heaven on their empire by throwing hundreds of their infants into a large furnace. We could only realize the combination 
by imagining a number of Manchester merchants with chimney pot hats and mutton chop whiskers going to church every Sunday at 11 o'clock to see a baby roasted alive. Obviously, these things should fill us with horror, but the key thing is here with Cheston saying, it's when a society has become civilised, and he's using civilised here in the, in the sense of uh, becoming a progressive society with lots of government bureaucracy and, and lots of taxation, lots of um, uh, mercantile activity, lots of commerce, as opposed to a rustic agrarian community of simple peasants. Simple peasants don't throw their own babies to the flames. It takes a decadent urban culture to do that. So what we're actually seeing is the, the repetition of history here with our own decadent urban cultures, basically bringing back the diabolical practices of previous decadent urban cultures. Not primitive, but actually so overripe with civilization that they are decaying. Page 149 on the same topic, about just over halfway down. Before the very gates of the Golden City, Hannibal fought his last fight for it and lost, and Carthage fell as nothing has fallen since Satan. The name of the new city remains only as a name. There is no stone of it left upon the sand. Another war was indeed waged before the final destruction, but the destruction was final. Only men digging in its deep foundation centuries after found a heap of hundreds of little skeletons, the holy relics of that religion. For Carthage fell because she was faithful to her own philosophy and had followed out to its logical conclusion her own vision of the universe. Moloch had eaten his children. And again, one of the wonderful things about the everlasting man is it teaches us everlasting lessons about the patterns that emerge from history. And one of the things we're in danger of doing always is to believe that our own time is the worst time. And we may even to buy into the progressive lie that basically is the final victory of Satan over the church because of the power they now have. I mean, I haven't got to, back, haven't got to go back very far to the nonsense of that. You could be a, somebody living in Germany in 1934 or... Soviet Union in 1934, or France in the 1790s. Uh, uh, th this is not something which is new. China today and for the past 50, 60 years. Okay, so on page 150, this is one of Cheston's uh, primary theses in this. About six lines down, it's the end of uh, chapter seven. It is certain that the struggle which established Christendom would have been very different if there had been an empire of Carthage instead of an empire of Rome. Europe evolved into its own vices and its own impotence, as will be suggested on another, on another page. But the worst into which it evolved was not like what it had escaped. Can any man in his senses compare the great wooden doll whom the children expected to eat a little bit of the dinner with the great idol who would have been expected to eat the children? In other words, that Rome was more civilized in uh, the moral sense, as opposed to the complex sense, than Carthage. And therefore, that was the seedbed that uh, Christendom grew from, whereas one can imagine Carthage would be a whole different barren wasteland for Christianity emerged from. So we have to understand the hand of providence here, right? That God gives us great poets in the pagan times. And then just get this in perspective here, there's only two writers of all time that can challenge Homer, you know, who's the greatest, the laurel of the supreme poet, Dante and Shakespeare. Other than that, Homer's the greatest ever. And as for playwrights, apart from Shakespeare, Sophocles is the greatest ever. And so the, basically the, the world is being pre prepared providentially by the bridegroom for his coming. The pagan world, the Gentile world, as well as the Jews. But the bottom of, bottom of page 159, it is proverbial that what would once have been a peasantry became a mere populace of the town, dependent for bread and circuses, which may again suggest to some a mob dependent upon dolls and cinemas. Dolls here, D-O-L-E. In other words, government benefits, welfare. Again, what's new? 
that 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 the the Roman Empire decayed when it no longer had an agrarian culture, but it had an urban culture where the populace had become a mob, and a mob that was kept happy as long as they had bread and circuses, as long as they are not starving, not hungry, and as long as you can distract them with entertainment. So you can ban church services, but you can't ban the NFL. All right. So that brings us to the end of part one of The Everlasting Man on the, the creature who is man. And now we're going to go to part two on the man called Christ. And I love the parallel. I mentioned this last week. I love the, the, the parallel and the symmetry of the fact that chapter one of part one is called The Man in the Cave. And chapter one of part two is called The God in the Cave. And of course, the cave to which Chesterton refers here is the cave in Bethlehem. And he says at the beginning of the chapter, the second half of human history, which was like a new creation of the world, also begins in a cave. And then he has this, um, the end of that paragraph, comparing the caveman with the God who is also a caveman. God also was a caveman and had also traced strange shapes of creatures curiously colored upon the wall of the world. But the pictures that he made had come to life. And the important thing here is the connection with the Imago Dei, the imagination, creativity. We are creators. That's part of the mark of who we are as human beings is that we are creative. No, chimpanzees don't write sonnets. Whales don't compose symphonies. Neither of them look at the stars in wonder. So the caveman, the only thing we know about him is he was an artist. He recreated the beauty of nature in in, in the animals that that he painted on the wall of the cave. God is the creator who also makes animals and all sorts of strange animals. Chesterton says in The Man Who Was Thursday, God's animals suggest he has a sense of humor, uh, that some of his animals are just jokes. So he says, for instance, the toucan is just basically a huge beak with a tiny bird tied, tied onto the back of it. And so no imagination could match what we've actually been given as a gift, which nonetheless we take for granted. That's our problem in our fallen natures. We don't stare in wonder at every, new, every species of animal and, and plant that's out there. Uh, again, I'm not going to quote from the from the book all the time because we don't have as much time as we might like. If we were in a classroom situation, it would be easier. But one of the key things that Cheston says about the, the, the incarnation, the God himself becoming a man, is it actually sanctifies the dignity of the human person. That we can't, we can no longer see a human person as another animal that we can do what we like with. The servile state, a state where the rich and powerful basically have the rest uh, as slave, becomes immoral once you understand the dignity of the human person. And of course, it goes without saying, infanticide, euthanasia, the father was speaking about, becomes unthinkable, unmentionable when you understand the dignity of the human person. There is within us the image of God in a way that separates us from the rest of creation. Okay, so move on to page 175. Again, questioning Chesterton. End of that paragraph there at the top. Since that hour, in other words, the hour of God in the cave, the incarnation, since that hour, no mythologies have been made in the world. Mythology is a search. Well, you know, mythology just means stories. He's saying no stories have been made in the world since the coming of Christ. Now, if he's talking about, you know, the the Greek pantheon of gods, that's a different thing, but he's not saying that. And as regards mythologies, the Lord of the Rings, for instance, that most of you know that I like a lot, you know, that the Lord of the Rings, which is the, the third most popular work of literature of all time, is a myth. It's a story with gods, if you read the Silmarillion, in Middle Earth, but it's a story that's inspired by Christ and points to Christ. As Tolkien says, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. There's no mention of Christ in it, 
but it points to Christ and it's inspired by Christ. I would say that the ancient myths, using C.S. Lewis's argument, the Iliad and the Odyssey, point to Christ. And they were inspired by Christ, not the poets being inspired by a Christ he didn't know, but by Christ himself sending the poet pictures. And it's significant that Homer begins both of his epics by with the words, sing muse. It's a prayer to the goddess of creativity to sing through him so that the truth can emerge. So again, I think that Chesterton's overstating his case here to make his point. He doesn't need to because his point is made very well regardless of it. And then he talks about, and I love this part of it, page 176, I'm going to paraphrase. He says, in, in the nativity story, the shepherds represent myth or faith or story. They're the sort of characters you would see in, you know, in, in, in the pagan stories, the shepherds with the nymphs or what have you. So they represent faith and myth. But Melchior, Caspar and Balthazar, the wise men, represent reason, the search of the philosophers. And they both find their way to the cave, both find their way to Bethlehem, because this is where myth and reason meet. It's where faith and reason meet. And I completely agree with that. But all I'm saying is that the myths were pointing in that direction because they've been pointing in that direction by Christ himself. So they would be read, the myth, the myth makers would be ready for him at the appointed hour. And bear that in mind as well. Who, you know, we have to see history from the perspective of God's omnipresence, right? There's no past for God. There's no future for God. So God knows from the time of Adam to the apocalypse. It's all happening. He didn't know. He's not going to know. He knows. And he also knows the moment when he enters the story. So we should, this, of course, is Chesterton's thesis. We should expect that moment to be a time where people are ready for his arrival. And not just the Jews. In fact, most of those weren't. It was the Gentiles that actually came into the church at the beginning in great numbers. And what did they have? They had the stories, the myths. They had the philosophy of the Greeks. So, again, part of this same story. So he says you have the shepherds that represent the truth seekers through myth or story. We have the wise men, the truth seekers through reason, philosophy, coming to pay homage at the manger. But you also have, page 180, Herod, alarmed at some rumour of a mysterious rival. And further down towards the end of that paragraph, page 180, that vast and fearful face that was Moloch of the Carthaginians. The demons also, in that first festival of Christmas, feasted after their own fashion. So what, what's Chester saying here about the coming of Christ into the world? Yes, it's where myth and reason are united and baptized. It's where uh, faith and reason are united and baptized. But it's also where the world realizes that it has a rival. The prince of the world realizes he has a rival and he responds in the way he always responds, with feasting upon the flesh of the innocent. The holy innocence in this case, feasting after their own fashion. And this is the pattern of history. You have to see history, as Chesterton sees it here, as a tapestry with three strands. The strand of goodness, the strand of virtue, the strand of the saints, those seeking to get to heaven. The strand of beauty, of wonder, those great works of art. Say, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, said the only argument for the church in the end are the saints she's produced and the art she's inspired, the goodness and the beauty. But the third strand in that tapestry of human history is the bad, the good, the bad, and the beautiful. So that's here we see it represented by Herod at the time of Christ, and that carries on throughout the whole of history. And we'll be here till the end, by the way. The wicked, like the poor, are always with us until the end of time or of course until our end of time when we die when we get to heaven there are no wicked souls in heaven all right let's carry on 
Well, no, actually, I'm going to carry on with the, with the nativity story, if you don't mind. Page 182. Herod had his place, therefore, in the miracle play of Bethlehem because he is the menace to the church militant and shows it from the first as under persecution and fighting for its life. Right at the very beginning, Herod is the symbol of the fact that the church is the church militant, the church on earth, the church militant, the church at war. And the enemy is Herod and all those others that serve, serve the prince of darkness. And the church from the first is under persecution. The slaughter of the innocents didn't begin with Roe versus Wade. And fighting for its life. Every generation. Yeah, so I love that top page 184. This is the trinity of truth. So I talk about three fabrics in history here, three threads in the tapestry of history. This is the trinity of truth symbolized here by the three types in the old Christmas story. The shepherds and the kings and that other king who warred upon the children. Right, so let's move on to uh, the next chapter, the riddles of the gospel. Go on to page 194, end of that paragraph. Whatever else is true, it is emphatically not true that the ideas of Jesus of Nazareth were suitable to his time, but are no longer suitable to our time. Exactly how suitable they were to his time is perhaps suggested in the end of his story. Of course, he means the crucifixion, not the resurrection, right? No, what Christ was saying was no more acceptable to the people of his own time than it's acceptable to the children of darkness in our time. Because, you know, again, there's a wonderful, those of you that read The Great Divorce by, Ch by Lewis, there's a modernist theologian in hell, which is where most modernist, modernist theologians are on their way to if they don't repent. There's a modernist theologian in hell, and he said, he, he's written a paper that says, you know, it's a great shame that, that, uh, that, that, that Jesus died at the age of 33, because if he'd lived long enough, he would have grown in wisdom and, and would have come to the same conclusions as the modernist theologian. <laughs> Jesus would have Jesus would have agreed with me if he'd lived long enough. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, this is the whole point, right? Is that the, what Christ says and does, and who he is, are timeless. Not just timeless in a temporal sense, timeless in an eternal sense. Okay, so page one ninety six to seven. I've written in the margin here as the sort of that covers these next few pages. Who do you say I am? Words from the gospel. Let me see what. People say he is today, two-thirds of the way down, page 196. Three or four separate schools of rationalism have worked over the ground and produced three or four equally rational explanations of his life. The first rational explanation of his life was that he never lived. <laughs> so he never happened, right? You can certainly explain him away by, by, uh, on that basis. And then a few lines further down. Then the idea that he was a divine being who did not exist gave place to the idea he was a human being who did exist. He's merely an ethical teacher, a nice man who says nice things. Then a few lines further down, then somebody said he was a madman with a messianic delusion. Then others said he was indeed an original teacher because he cared about nothing but socialism. Or as others said, about nothing but pacifism. Halfway down the page, I'm gonna let Chester speak for himself here because I can't say it better. Now, each of these explanations in itself seems to me singularly inadequate. But taken together, they do suggest something of the very mystery which they miss. There must surely have been something not only mysterious, but many-sided about Christ, if so many smaller Christs can be carved out of him. If the Christian scientist is satisfied with him as a spiritual healer, and the Christian socialist is satisfied with him as a social reformer, so satisfied that they do not even expect him to be anything else, it looks as if he really covered rather more ground than they could be expected to expect. It does seem to suggest that there might be more than they fancy in these other mysterious attributes of casting out devils or prophesying doom. In other words, that all of the efforts to explain away Christ, far from explaining him away, actually suggest that he is bigger than the explanations. And in page 202, that new paragraph there, the purpose of these pages is to fix the falsity of certain vague and vulgar assumptions. And we have here one of the most false. There's a sort of notion in the air everywhere that all the religions are equal because all the religious founders were rivals, that they are all fighting for the same starry crown. It is quite false. The claim to that crown or anything like that crown 
is really so rare as to be unique. In other words, only Christ claims it. Muhammad did not make it any more than Micah or Malachi, any of the other prophets, assuming in Muslim view that he's a prophet. Confucius did not make it any more than Plato or Marcus Aurelius. So none of the philosophers made the claim, however great they were. Buddha never said he was Brahma. Zoroaster no more claimed to be Ulmas than to be Ariman. In other words, no one makes the claim that Christ makes of all the religious teachers. The, Christ, the claim that Christ makes, that he is the son of God, the son of the living God, that before any of the prophets were, he was, or he is. No one no, that makes that claim. It's a unique claim. And then, normally speaking, the greater a man is, the less likely he is to make very great claim. In other words, to claim that, you're basically going to be a madman. Outside the unique case we are considering, the only kind of man who ever does make that kind of claim is a very small man a secretive or self-centered monomaniac. Nobody can imagine Aristotle claiming to be the father of gods and men come down from the sky. We might imagine some insane Roman emperor like Caligula claiming it for him, or more probably for himself. Nobody can imagine Shakespeare talking as if he were literally divine, though we might imagine some crazy American crank finding it as a cryptogram in Shakespeare's works, or preferably in his own works, it is possible to find here and there human beings who make this supremely human, superhuman claim. It is possible to find them in lunatic asylums, in padded cells, possibly in straight waistcoats. In other words, to make that claim, you are either mad or you're telling the truth. And the only person that's telling the truth is the one every other, every other way you look at him, every other angle, he is completely and eminently sane and rational and good, because a madman gives himself away very quickly, right? You know, someone's walking around saying, I'm God, then, you know, you pretty quickly realize that he needs help. <laughs> Everyone came to Christ seeking help. But nobody supposes that Jesus of Nazareth was that sort of person. No modern critic in his five wits thinks that the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount was a horrible half-witted imbecile that might be scrawling stars on the walls of a cell. No atheist or blasphemer believes that the author of the parable of the prodigal son was a monster with one mad idea, like a cyclops with one eye. Upon any possible historical criticism, he must be put higher in the scale of human beings than that. Yet by all analogy, we have really to put him there or else in the highest place of all. Okay, page 207. I'm going to cut to the chase in about two minutes. So the strangest story in the world we can also call the greatest story ever told, is the fulfillment of all myth. So the whole of that paragraph at the top of page 207 there, two-thirds of the page, is worth reading, but we're not going to. And even, in the, even the external movement of it must not be described as a wandering in the sense of forgetting that it was a journey. This is where it was a fulfillment of the myths rather than of the philosophies. It is a journey with a goal and object. So what he's really saying is that God actually presents himself to us in a story that basically the myths are fulfilled in Christ because he is the true myth, to use a phrase of Tolkien. But page 213, I'm going to raise my eyebrows at Chesterton again. For in that second cavern, the whole of that great and glorious humanity, which we call antiquity, was gathered up and covered over. And in that place, it was buried. It was the end of a very great thing called human history, the history that was merely human. The mythologies and the philosophies were buried there, the gods and the heroes and the sages, in the great Roman phrase, they had lived. But as they could only live, so they could only die, and they were dead. Are the great works of literature by Homer, Sophocles, Aeschylus dead? Are the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle dead? Clearly, if it wasn't for Homer, there would be no Virgil. If it wasn't for Virgil, there'd be no Divine Comedy by Dante, greatest work of Christian literature ever written, because Virgil was inspired by the life in Homer, and Dante was inspired by the life in Virgil. St. Augustine takes the ideas of Plato and baptizes them. St. Thomas Aquinas takes the ideas of Aristotle and baptizes them. Yes, they may have died, but only in the sense that Christ had died. They were risen from the dead, baptized, 
that Christendom, Christ makes sense of the pagan myths and the pagan philosophies because he baptizes them. Let's remember what baptism is, right? You die so that you may rise from the dead. Homer is baptized by Christ. Plato is baptized by Christ. Aristotle is baptized by Christ. The only dead in the sense that one who dies is subsequently resurrected. Okay. I'm not going to talk about, uh, he, he talked about the witness of the heretics. This is his defense of orthodoxy, uh, chapter four here in part two. The key thing he says, and that's an unintentional pun. The key thing he says is all about the key. He basically says the foundation of the whole gospel is uh, what, um, uh, well, it's right at the beginning of the chapter here. Christ founded the church with two great figures of speech. The first was the phrase about founding it on Peter as on a rock. The second was the symbol of the key. And here he talks about you know, basically the key being, uh, he mentioned the same thing in orthodoxy earlier. He says uh, a stick can fit any hole, but only the right key opens the door, unlocks the door. Orthodoxy, the, the Athanasian Creed, the complexity of Catholic Orthodox doctrine, the catechism of the Catholic Church is complex because it's the key that unlocks everything else. That's basically his argument here against the, the, uh, uh, the heretics and the heresies. I've got to, I do want to mention page 245, problem of progress. He calls it the problem of progress. It's uh, last paragraph on page uh, 245. What is called the problem of progress? One of the ablest agnostics of the age once asked me whether I thought mankind grew better or grew worse or remained the same. He was confident that the alternative covered all possibilities. He did not see that it only covered patterns and not pictures. Processes are not stories. I asked him whether he thought that Mr. Smith of Golders Green got better or worse, or he made exactly the same between the age of 30 and 40. It then seemed to dawn on him that it would rather depend on Mr. Smith and how he chose to go on. It had never occurred to him that it might depend on how mankind chose to go on, and that its course was not a straight line, or an upward or downward curve, things are not getting inexorably better or inexorably worse, but a track like that of a man across a valley, going where he liked and stopping where he chose, going into a church or falling drunk in a ditch. The life of man is a story, an adventure story. And in our vision, the same is true even of the story of God. In other words, in human history here. All right, I'm going to finish now with... Um, the deaths and resurrections of the faith and page 250 onwards. We need to read this wisdom in our particular times. We need to read this wisdom in all particular times because they're all actually amazingly similar. So second paragraph, first with the title, the five deaths of the faith. Okay, the faith has died at least five times, Chesterton tells us. Christendom has had a series of revolutions and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again. We had a God who knew the way out of the grave. Remember that ecclesiology, that the church is the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that the church in heavens, the church triumphant, church in purgatory is the church suffering, the church on earth, the church at war. But we're part of the mystical body of Christ, the largest part of which is in heaven. It's already triumphant. If we stay true, we'll be there ourselves. We just have to do our active service heroically between now and then. To get that reward. So the mystical body of Christ cannot cannot be destroyed, but it can, according to Chesterton, be killed. But being the mystical body of Christ, it just rises again from the dead. But the first extraordinary fact which marks this history is this, that Europe has been turned upside down over and over again. That at the end of each of these revolutions, the same religion has again been found on top. Every time that the faith has been destroyed, it's been found on top again 100 years later. The faith is always converting the age, not as an old religion, but as a new religion. It's almost it's got to be the resurrected church that has the power to preach, not the dying church. Three or four times, at least in the history of Christendom, the whole soul seemed to have gone out of Christianity and almost every man in his heart expected its end. I'm sure many of us now are probably talking to people that have this attitude. And I'm not going to read the details. I, obviously, I implore you to read this final chapter. Of, uh, uh, of the book, of the, book um, the Five Deaths of the Faith. But he talks about Arianism uh, and how that appeared to have been triumphant. He talks about the missionaries from Ireland. And again, this wonderful phrase here, missionaries from Ireland. Some of them were martyred on the coast of Cornwall 
And the chief authority on Cornish antiquities told me that he did not believe for a moment that they were martyred by heathens, but, as he expressed it with some humour, by rather slack Christians. All right. So basically, in a time of decaying faith, it's so-called Christians that will martyr the saints. So it's about the Renaissance. The church was dead at the end of the Renaissance, and then, then we had the Counter-Reformation. We talked about the Reformation and then the Counter-Reformation. All right, and I'm going to finish now, but I want to just finish with his conclusion, the summary of the book. I'm not going to read any of it, except that he begins the first 12 lines there by praising H.G. Wells. So it's H.G. Wells' outline of history, which is so outraged Belloc because of its arrogance, its progressive understanding of a golden age in the future heralded by science. And basically, Chesterton you know, praises it as a great work of many-sided encyclopedia of history for which that name was chosen. And Mr. World could, could, uh, sorry, Mr. World could here only be criticised as an outline. But the, so in other words, it, it, he, he's praising it. It is admirable as an accumulation of history. It is splendid as a storehouse or treasury of history. It is a fascinating disquisition on history. It is most attractive as an amplification of history, but it is quite false as an outline of history. So Chesterton shows us here what's necessary. We need to be able to argue without quarreling. We need to be able to offer clarity to a confused age with charity. Now, I want to just finish maybe with words of Belloc. I think I might have mentioned this last week, but it's a good place to finish, is that Belloc wrote in his tribute to Chesterton following the death of Chesterton in his little booklet on the place of Gilbert Keith Chesterton in English letters, the Chesterton sometimes lost an argument because he didn't go for the kill. But he said, but then Chesterton's in heaven. That's our challenge, is to fight evil with sanctity and sanity, understanding that sanity and sanctity are basically the same thing. And the challenge of our own dark times is to be as Chesterton, I won't say was, because he's in heaven. The challenge of our own dark times is to be as Chesterton is. Thank you. Beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Joseph Pierce. Um, actually, Joseph, I want to start off um, with a quick question of uh, you were talking about Chesterton's chapter on the, the deaths of Christianity. Um, since the publication of The Everlasting Man, how many more deaths do you think Christianity would have gone through, according to Chesterton? Well, that's a great question. Of course, the 20th century was the bloodiest in human history. Uh, it first when the ultimate absolute body count in the number of people killed through the hatred of modernism and its technology and the weapons of mass destruction that we now have to kill each other with. But certainly, you know, he was writing in 1925. It was published in 1925. Chesterton wrote quickly. So he probably was writing in 1925 as well. Um, you know, uh, the full horrors of the Soviet Union hadn't emerged. So uh, obviously the, the, everyone knew that Bolshevism was anti-Christian and that Christians had been killed in the revolution uh, and what have you, and in the civil war that followed. But the, the start of these purges hadn't happened. People certainly didn't know about them, and tens of millions were killed during, the, during Stalin's reign, and, and they, those killings continued after Stalin died. So that's, in terms of sheer numbers, the biggest death of Christianity ever. And by the way, you know, to talk about our brothers in the, in the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, those of you who want to despair because of, you know, certain elections not going the way you want them to go. An atheistic revolutionary regime ruled in the Soviet Union from 1917 until 1990, right, for a period of 83 years. There was nobody alive at the end of that Soviet empire, that anti-communist atheist empire, that remembered a Christian Russia. Now, to, to, all, to all rational purposes now, the line's been broken. The memory's gone. There's nothing left. How can the church possibly rise from the ashes after that? And yet they, they talked about you know, the babushkas, the, the grandmothers, you know, just passing on the faith and what have you. And now the Russian Orthodox Church is, it, 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 if, if you were to say in 1990 that the Russian Orthodox Church would be as powerful as it is now in Russia, 30 years later, you would have been called a madman. Right? So th this is something we should be bearing in mind. And of course, Adolf Hitler, hadn't emerged on the scene when, uh, when when Chesterton wrote this and the Third Reich and the genocide and Maxus and Asmin and Kolber, you know, uh, St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, etc. And Mao Tse Tung 
and the, and the Chinese have killed even more than the Soviets, uh, Chinese Communist Party. So, yes, so the point is that the, the, the church has suffered several other deaths in the century, not even a century yet, since Chesson wrote that book. And we're still here. We oh. keep rising from the dead. Um, Ahmed asks, how is it that the philosophy that gave rise to the myth is rejected but the myth itself is supposedly pointing to Christ. If the philosophy is wrong, how can the myth from it be correct? Well, again, um, if, if the way I sometimes, I actually wrote something last week uh, for the imaginative conservative called Arguing with Dante and Milton. You can see I'm foolish enough to argue with other people apart from Chesterton. <laughs> um, but as regards uh, Milton, I say that... Uh, Apart from the biblical trappings, Milton's epic cannot be called truly Christian uh, any more than we could call the epics of Homer truly Christian and the epics, epic of Virgil truly Christian. In fact, I said, on the contrary, and I used the uh, C.S. Lewis's analogy of the virgin and the divorcee, you could argue that Homer is groping towards the light in a darkness for which he's not culpable, by the way. It's nobody's fault if they're born before the birth of Christ. We should look down upon them for that. That he's groping towards the light, whereas Milton, in, in denying the Trinity, becoming Unitarian, in, in giving personhood to Satan, which makes him basically a, 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 a rebel leader that's become very popular in certain circles, that you could say that he was walking away from the light like a divorcee. So that's what I would say is that the, the, the philosophy, and we don't know what Homer's philosophy was, except it's quite clear, A, that he believed there was a supernatural dimension. He's not an atheist. He's a polytheist. But if you actually read the Iliad and the Odyssey, the suggestion is that that Zeus has more power than the rest of the gods put together. Uh, and it's, it's Zeus's will that's done, regardless of the best efforts of the other gods. I mean, you actually see that parallel. It's not that different from a Christian cosmology if you see the gods as angels, right? Because the Christian, Christian cosmology, there are supernatural beings that are on the side of darkness, and there, are, and there are supernatural beings on the side of light. Now, admittedly, in Homer's gods, uh, they're like, human beings and they, they contain both the dualistic and that sense so i'm not claiming that homer was a christian of course but i am thinking he's asking questions so if there's a harmony in the cosmos can it really be can there really be uh this disharmony in the god so does there have to be one god ultimately whose will is done regardless of all the evil that's out there both supernaturally and naturally in other words it's not a million miles in fact he gets amazingly close considering he's writing 700 years before the birth of Christ. I mean, in some ways, he may have been closer than than some of the atheists that are that are out there today, in a way. Oh, he's, he's much closer because he's looking in the right direction and, and, and he's seeking the truth. Most atheists are looking in the wrong direction, mostly willfully. In other words, they don't want to look towards God because they hate him. Now, again, there's a pathology here. Hating someone you claim doesn't exist. Well, that's that's a weird, quite frankly. Um, you know, so, no, home is much closer to God than, 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 than atheists. Um, Mary writes, I have the impression that most or many Gentile converts to early Christianity were poor in society. Would they have been familiar with Greek mythology? She says you suggested that, she thinks. Well, I mean... The the Gentile convert from, from uh, what we now would call Greece absolutely would have done. But obviously, the, the, the Roman Empire wasn't just Greece. So you got Gentiles coming in from all over the place. Uh, and what the church did was to actually baptize the myths. And so, you know, whatever the local cult was, I mean, to go to Northern Europe, you know, that the yew tree is the end of nature, right? The yew tree lives for centuries. People knew that. So the yew tree became a sacred place. Now, in some cases, the, the Christian state would come and chop the tree down and say, well, you know, if your God's got any power, he's going to strike me down. That's one way of doing it. But the other way of doing it is to build a church. So, yes, this is a sacred place. But instead of instead of destroying it, we're going to baptize it. We're going to make it holy in a, in a true sense of the word, not a, not a false, inadequate sense of the word. So that's what the church did. It's, it's the original true understanding of the word enculturation, right? Where we basically take what's good in the culture and we baptize it. Um, Alexandra asks, what did Chesterton think of the Romantic era and poets and their retraction from reason? That's a very good question. I knew question. you'd like that question, Joseph. Um, Chesterton basically is a Romantic. 
and that actually can be a problem. Uh, you know, it's no, it's no. Uh, you know, he wrote about Thomas Aquinas, and he wrote about Francis of Assisi. Although his life of Francis of Assisi, particularly, was very much a romantic life of. St. Francis of Assisi, which is not a criticism, but he was steeped in the 19th century. So he, the Victorian age in literature, great book by, by him, books of Robert Browning and William Blake, G.F. Watts and others. That's, that's his area of speciality. But you have to understand there's two types of romanticism, speaking really broadly. The, the romanticism of, of, of Wordsworth and Coleridge is um, a rejection of the atheistic rationalism of the Enlightenment and a return to an understanding of Christianity. And St. John Henry Newman stated unequivocally that, that those romantics were crucial to the Oxford movement, they were crucial to the Gothic revival, they were crucial to, um, to the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, to neo-medievalism, which was a major, uh, major cultural component of the 19th century, was due to that first generation of romantics. The later generation of romantics they, they confused. I and mean, there was some wonderful poetry, but you see in Keats's uh, "To a Nightingale," for instance, and you know, and 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 the poetry of Shelley and Byron, this tendency towards self-centered, egocentric, trying to find the truth in one's ego, uh, and and to that we can certainly find the roots of postmodernism and some of the nonsense we're living under today. So, romanticism is that there's good and bad romanticism. Chesterton obviously rejected the bad romanticism, but he was uh, uh, he was definitely a romantic in the better sense of the word. I see Ray uh, raising his hand. Ray, go ahead and take your hand, yourself off mute. Okay. Mo it seems most of what Chesterton wrote was for or in response to th of things other people wrote. Did he ever write about the church or about the doctrines of the church or about, I mean, <clears throat> what I'm trying to say is he didn't, uh, I don't want to say he didn't criticize the church, but he never wrote about what was going on in the church at the time, or did he? You know, it's it's only 30 or 40 or 50 years since Vatican I for him. Did, did he ever comment on the church in that sense? Well, I mean, he wrote about the church as regards its doctrine all the time. Uh, you know, he wrote a book of the Catholic Church Conversion, for instance, uh, um, Orthodoxy, of course. Um, you know, um, so he, 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 he wrote about the church's doctrine. He didn't write about the politics of the church. And uh, my theory on that, for what it's worth, is that Chesterton would not want to speak negatively about the mystical body of Christ, even if individuals in the church warranted it. And it's similar to his attitude to women. You know, that people have, argue, have said that there's no wicked women in Chesterton's fiction. Well, no, there isn't, because Chesterton puts women on a pedestal and looks up to them. He doesn't look down on them, looks up to them. And he won't think about bringing them down to the level of the gutter, which is where men are right now. That, that might, not be where we, might not be where women want to be or should be, right? But that's where he puts them. He doesn't look down on them, looks up to them. And I think with the church, it's the same thing. Even if I see things that, 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 that I don't like, it's not for me to say it. But where he did attack, if that's the right word, criticize strongly individual Catholics is when they're heretics. So for instance, Father George Tyrrell, the Jesuit, who was condemned and excommunicated for the heresy of modernism in the in the first decade of the 20th century? Chesterton was a, was a, not a Catholic at the time, but basically came out in defence of the church's position. This man does not believe what the church believes, and if he doesn't believe what the church believes, he should have no no complaint when the church asks him to leave. Um, I see Chris has his hand raised. Chris, go ahead and take yourself off of mute. Joseph, <laughs> thank you so much. Great to see you. One of my favorite Chesterton quotes is. The good soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. In The Everlasting Man, there's a subtle twist on that. Can you reconcile that for us, those two different thoughts? I, I First of all, I, it's one of my favorite quotes by Chesterton as well, although I have loads. Um, <laughs> but but what's, what's the subtle twist you're talking about? I can't comment it until I understand it. Sorry. In the book, he's talking about the Roman soldiers at one point. They hate Carthage. And it helps to animate their fight against Carthage. It reminds me of, you know, fear the Lord and hate evil. Is that part of what he's saying there? Well, you know, I, I, what Chesterton's doing with his discussion of, of, of the war between Rome and Carthage is there's something cosmological going on here. But as regards individual soldiers, you know, that if they hated someone for being a Carthaginian, then it's a sin. Because the Carthaginians are made in the image of God. And I'm, however obnoxious the civilization was can we say that every Carthaginian 
was as evil as the worst of them. Um, so uh, it, I, I don't know the I don't know the passage the, you're talking about, but if if Chester is saying that it's okay for the Romans to hate the Carthaginians rather than hating Carthage, because that would be hate, hating Carthage would be hating the sin. Hating the Carthaginians would be hating the sinner. And that's where the problem comes in. Perfect. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. All right. Just uh, one last one here from Riz. I see you've got your hand raised. So go ahead, take yourself off a mute and ask your question. Okay. Uh, thank you again for a wonderful lecture, Joseph. Uh, my question is, um, the comment you made earlier about baptizing the pagan pagan myths, um, is this across all cultures? Because I I live in Japan, so my context is Buddhist and, and Shin, Buddhism and Shinto. So I was wondering what how this applies in missiology. How, uh, can we do that also across all cultures? Uh, you were specifically addressing Greek mythology. Yeah. Well, the first the first thing I would say is that I'm not going to uh, profess upon things of which I'm ignorant, uh, but I will give you some principles. So basically, I, 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 what I know is Western civilization. I don't know uh, Oriental civilization, so I'm, I'm ignorant. But what I would say is because this is what the church teaches. And of course, it's it, it's evidently true that all human persons have that dignity of the human person because they're made in the image of God, which means we all have a desire for the good, the true, and the beautiful, which means our expressions of that in our, should we say, twilight world without the fullness of the revelation, whether that's because we live before the time of Christ or because we live in parts of the world that have not been evangelized, um, that we're living in a twilight world, but not a, a world of darkness, because as Lewis says, that, that God sent the pagans pictures, right? That God loves people that don't know him. And so uh, any manifestation of human culture, which is basically a, uh, a product of the dignity of the human person seeking God with the assistance of God's grace, because without that assistance, we don't seek him. So there's already a relationship going on between the individual, wherever, whatever culture they live in, whatever time or whatever space, between the God that gives them the grace that they may not even be aware of so that they can wonder and ask the right questions. So uh, I don't know much about Buddhism, Shintoism. I haven't studied it, uh, even, you know, but I know enough about God because of what he's revealed to us about himself and about human persons because of what he's revealed to us about ourselves that everybody everybody's human needs him and is looking for him and i would expect expect to find that manifest in the myths and stories and religions of uh, non-christian cultures thank you my pleasure so just quickly, Joseph, before we uh, let you go, there are quite a few people that wrote in just asking for reading recommendations. What of Chesterton would you recommend reading next? Okay, uh, great question. Again, if you've enjoyed The Everlasting Man, the, 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 the books that are probably closest to it in terms of theme and gravitas uh, would be Orthodoxy and uh, his book on St. Thomas Aquinas, which in this country I think was published by the name The Dumb Ox. In English, it's published as uh, Thomas Aquinas. Probably there. If you're struggling with Chesterton, I know one of the questions that I answered vigorously <laughs> uh, seemed to be struggling, then I have suggested in the past, and will suggest again, my biography of Chesterton, Wisdom and Innocence, A Life of G.K. Chesterton. is a good introduction to his life and work, and also the works of Dale Alquist. So he's written several books, including Common Sense 101, which are introductions to Chesterton that are very accessible. So that would be the beginner's guide, either my book or Dal Olkis books. But if you want to get into Chesterton for real with something similar to The Everlasting Man, then those two books I've just mentioned. But I would recommend you check out, you know, his novels, uh, The Man Who Was Thursday, for instance, The Ball and the Cross. All right. Well, thank you so much, Joseph, for the reading list. Joseph, would you mind just closing us in prayer real quick? Name the Father, the Son of the Holy Ghost. Lord, we thank you for this time together tonight. I hope that, uh, that we will all be closer to you through our conversation uh, and that we always seek you um, through the fullness of all that is good, true and beautiful and that we will learn to love you and our neighbour and our enemy and be a, a source of clarity and charity in the world that needs clarity and charity so badly at the moment. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Saints Timothy and Titus, pray for us. Amen. Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.
Joseph Pierce, thank you so much. This was such fun to listen to you and um, learned a lot. And don't forget, everyone, jpierce.co is his website. And uh, Joseph, just quickly, if you want to give a little plug for your inner sanctum. Yeah, sure. Basically, you know, my, my, in my personal website, and there's a blog, but there's also an inner sanctum where I pub- publish it, post each week, three podcasts and a Lady Dow diary about what we the Pierce family. That's every week. And there's also a 45 part lecture series on Tolkien and Lewis. There's basically hundreds of things in there. The gold mine. I have a poem of the week, poems of the week. It's only two or three poems a week, which I'll read and comment on. Joseph, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.